Hello everyone, um, my name's Harry, I'm just going to read the Bible for us this evening. Um, let's find it. We're going to be reading from James chapter 5, uh, and I'm reading the whole thing. So if you'd like to follow along with me, starting at verse 1 um, in the Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen as well. So let's read. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the faith of, face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over you, them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I'm just going to invite Miriam up to share the sermon, and I'm going to pray for her as she does. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James and the journey that we've been able to go on through it. And I pray tonight as you speak to us from the final chapter and as we wrap it up that, yeah, you would really speak through Miriam. We would be ready to hear what you have to say through her. And thank you for the, yeah, all the, the hard work that Miriam has put into tonight. And we look forward to hearing, yeah, what she has to say. So thank you and amen. Cheers. Thanks, Jase. My name's Miriam, if we haven't met before. Hi. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail. That's a really intense start to the passage. Thanks, James. I was saying to someone in the ministry team, everything in James is kind of like a sucker punch to read. It's just really intense. Now I moved house this week. 
And I've spent the last few weeks packing a little bit at a time and the last few days unpacking all of my stuff into my new house. It's a lot of stuff. Like, it's a lot. Like, it's a lot. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I'm almost completely unpacked, except for those few boxes of random things that go from one house's junk drawer to the next house's junk drawer, and a couple of suitcases of winter clothes that I'm not even sure will fit into my new wardrobe. And the jackets take up a lot of space, right? And jumpers are bulky, and that's why it's okay that I have so many clothes, bags of winter clothes. It's all right, isn't it? Was James writing to me? Will the corrosion of my belongings testify against me? It's been a strange and confronting week to write a sermon. Every section of these 20 verses, as with much of James, could be its own sermon. But we don't have time for all of that, so today we'll mostly focus on the first five verses with its warning to the rich oppressors, and then we'll go briefly across the following parts of the passage. So who is James writing to in his original context and in these verses? Now, it might be tempting, and some commentators take this route, to read these first five verses as condemning the rich outside of the church, right? We're the poor oppressed church, and we're mad at the rich oppressors outside of the church. But this doesn't seem to hold true to the rest of James. James has spent much of his letters speaking out against those who have allowed their wealth to consume them within the church. For example, and these verses are from the ESV, and they're just going to pop up on the screen, In James 1, we have let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What about James 2 that we heard about um, Brie reflecting on? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes to your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you will pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, you stand over here or sit down at the good place, while you say to the poor man, over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you are called? And then in James 3, who is wise and understanding amongst you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Those are heavy words. 
And then in James 4, right before the verses that we look at, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a place and do such a town and into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. And finally in James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So given the context of this book and the fact that James is expecting it to be read to the church, not to external communities, it is so much more likely that James' call to weep and to wail is to the wealthy people in the church. Are we in Australia among the wealthy of the church? James is using prophetic apocalyptic language in those early verses. Weep and wail and howl has correlations with the language of the Old Testament prophets. But his language is not just referring to the end times at great distance. The misery that is coming on you is present continuous. God's judgment of rich oppressors begins even now as the last days have begun with Jesus coming. And their wealth is falling apart like moth-eaten clothes. This is both a metaphorical and a literal example that James is sending because in James's day, wealth was collected in gold and in silver and in fine clothing. And so to store it up and to hoard it was to expose your gold and your silver to rust and your fine clothing to the moths. Their wealth is both falling apart and testifying against them. Does my wealth testify against me? Commentator Matthew Henry draws out a series of sins that the rich are particularly prone to, as James has described in his verses. First, we have covetousness, and we see that earlier in James. And then we have oppression, as in verse 4, and we'll come back to that. And then we have luxury and self-indulgence. And Henry says, God does not forbid us to use pleasure, but to live in it as if we lived for nothing else is a very provoking sin. I just really love that indignation. It's just really annoying, guys. It's an annoying, it's a dumb sin. Come on. Some may say, what harm is there in good cheer provided people do not spend more than what they have, right? What? Is it no harm for people to make gods of their bellies and to give all to these instead of abounding in acts of charity and piety? What harm is there in good cheer provided people do not spend more than they have. Oof, I recognize that phrase. In my own thinking, 
and in broader discussion and loudly in what we hear from the world around us. It's your money. You've earned it. You can choose how you spend it, right? You worked hard for this. You worked for this. Some of you worked hard for this. <laughs> There's a problem with this. As N.T. Wright points out, it resonates, of course, with many parts of today's world. We may be weary of saying it and of hearing it, but the way the global economy is set up is designed to produce more or less the same effect as the ancient Judean economy, with most of the money flowing steadily in one direction. This is reproduced again and again more locally as small groups of powerful people made sure they possessed not just enough, but more than enough, and then more again, while others starve and beg within sight of them. We often think of our wealth as what we have earned and as God, as, uh, excuse me, as what we have earned and as God's blessing to us. But it starts as the prophet, hard-earned or otherwise, it's the prophet of a broken world. And this is a social justice issue, and those words make us kind of uncomfortable, particularly in the inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne. But it must be, because James condemns his readers as withholding wages. Now, I don't withhold anyone's wages. It may be because I don't pay anyone's wages, but I like to think if I did pay anyone's wages, I wouldn't withhold them. But how many of the fast fashion companies that we use withhold wages or even just withhold adequate living wages from their staff? And I, we, purchase with happy ignorance, willful or otherwise. Will God not hold us to account? If we want God to transform our wealth into a gift, we need to use it for him. Otherwise, it rots and testifies against us. Someone gives you a wonderful meal and you stick it in the fridge and don't touch it forever and ever and ever and ever. At what point does it just become a mess, a curse in your own house? Otherwise, we are simply fattening ourselves for the day of slaughter. Like the geese that you use to make foie gras, you know that really fancy pate, and they use the liver of really, really fat geese. Now the geese are really, really fat because they've been force-fed. And so they're force-fed to the point where they can't walk, and then, you know, they're killed, and their livers are used to make this really fancy pate. And James is saying, basically, you're like the geese, but instead of being force-fed, you're going in there yourself and shoving it down your throats just in time for the chopping block. Like the turkey eating lots just in time for Christmas. Is our wealth corroding us? Now there's another phrase we hear a lot from the world around us, especially in the last 30 years or so. It's become really popular. It's because you're worth it, it says. Thank you, L'Oreal, for that. And I wanted to take a minute to look at a video that L'Oreal put together on this phrase. We're worth it. Because I'm worth it. I'm worth it. In the 70s, the women's rights movement descended into the streets. But advertising had not yet given women a voice. Their husbands did the talking for them. The hairspray that leaves hair feeling like hair. hair, hair, hair. A 23-year-old advertiser came up with this slogan, Because I'm Worth It. 
and revolutionized the rules of advertising for an entire era. I, I, I use the most expensive hair color in the world, preference by L'Oreal. It's not that I care about money. It's that I care about my hair. It's not just the color. I expect great color. Actually, I don't mind spending more for L'Oreal because I'm worth it. I did know the overall concept was huge. I really liked that, that it was that, you know, I'm worth it. This was very new because the woman talked herself about her feelings and her experience about the product. And if I pay more, I feel I get more and I'm worth it. It's the end of the 80s. The world is changing and so are women's lives. They're more independent and self-confident. They've won the self-esteem that society had never before accorded them. He says I'm a gorgeous blonde. I say I'm a smart blonde. He says my hair is the color of a pale golden jewel. I say of course. I use preference by L'Oreal. He says I'm worth it. I say the guy's no dummy. The slogan, because I'm worth it, changes and evolves into because you're worth it. Some of the women, it might have been, I don't remember if it was Heather Locklear or whether it was Andy McDowell, at some point someone said, you know, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable saying I'm worth it. I mean, it's okay, but I want other women to feel like they're worth it too. You're worth it. Ever since, this baseline has been a constant for women, encouraging their independence and fulfillment. You can be feeling down, a little insecure, and just feeling like a human being sometimes because we all have our moments and maybe watch that commercial and realize I am worth it. As strong and meaningful as ever, this baseline still conveys the same values of respect and recognition. In many countries in the world, the reality that women are worth it is a battle that must still be fought. There's a lot going on in that. Um, I feel really strongly that women are worth it, and men. Um, and I feel really strongly that we should have our voices about what we use, but that's, that's not where we find our worth. That's not where we get it. Is my wealth telling me what I'm worth? Is my worth being found or expressed through my spending of money? I know I often turn to belongings, to fashion, to my latest purchase to define me, to satisfy my cravings. When I'm stressed, when I'm tired, I go to Facebook Marketplace. You're laughing because you do it too, aren't you? <laughs> but I also return to Matthew Henry's quote. Is it no harm for people to make gods of their bellies and to give all to these instead of abounding in acts of charity and piety? Are we making a god of our bellies or our wardrobes or our belongings? Where are we finding our worth? See, I am worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it because the Lord made you. He made us in his image and saved us by his blood. Our innate value and our salvation status comes from a good God. We need to practice remembering that. If I'm making a practice of finding my worth through Facebook Marketplace, there's much less room in my head and my heart to find my worth in God. I remember asking a friend once, do you think there's a sinful amount of money to have? It's always a bit more than what we have, right? So what I have is fine, but maybe the next, you know, run up is sinful. Certainly the billionaires, right? 
He replied, there's not a sinful amount of money, but there is a sinful attitude towards money, and you can have that with $20, with 200, 200,000, or 2 million. We can be sinful in our approach with either amount. We do know from the Bible and from life that it is that much harder to maintain a holy attitude with great wealth. As Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? There's so many distractions. But James isn't condemning rich people as a blanket rule. As another commentator, Tasker, says it, neither here nor elsewhere in the New Testament are the rich to denounced merely for being rich, but rather for yielding so readily to the temptations to which the rich are especially prone. The almost invariable accompaniments of great wealth are a false sense of security and an insatiable love of power. He goes on to say, because the rich are nearly always self-deceived by thinking that their present prosperity will be permanent, James warns them that miseries are coming upon them. Are we obsessed with security and power? How are we different to the world around us? Where are we placing our wealth? Are we sinful in our attitude towards our wealth at 200 or 200,000? How are we allowing God to turn wealth into his glory? I haven't figured out all the answers yet. Uh, even in writing this, I'm wanting to sit down and have another crack at how am I doing my finances? What am I doing with my money and my time? Where am I finding my worth? But there's a few things that I find useful practices to keep reminding me. So we'll have a look at a few of these practical steps of how to avoid the sin that so often entangles, particularly with wealth and when luxury becomes our goal. First of all, practicing generosity. It's okay to have beautiful things, but am I willing to, just as willing to give them away? My favorite jacket, my new car, my laptop, my food, my home, in the Middle East, there's a practice of when someone compliments something, you offer it to them. That's a lovely stuff. Here, take it. Now, there's a few rules around this. Uh, it's not just a blank check, uh, although sometimes people will bend those. So when I was a child, um, I had learned that you offer what someone compliments, but my best friend hadn't learned that you don't always accept. So she would say, that's a nice toy, and I'd say, thank you. Do you want it? And she would say, yes. And I lost a lot of toys before I figured out that I needed to put a stop for this. But I remember my mom telling me a story of going to visit a family and she saw a, um, a washing bowl that would have been used in the old hammams and she said, oh, that's lovely. And they said, thank you, take it. She said, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. No, 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 take it, take it, take it. No, 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 it's fine. Anyway, they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And finally, she was forced to receive this gift which she then found out was a family heirloom. Are we willing to give up our family heirlooms for other people? Are there things that we hold more tightly than someone else's need or than our relationships? We need to give to those who ask as a practice of keeping a soft heart. Now, it's important to be generous for other people, but it's actually really important for us too. 
A lot of people will raise the question, and this is a good one, of knowing what money will be used for if we're giving it to someone who begs. And it is good to be wise and discerning with your money. But it is just as important to empower someone by allowing them to make the decision of what they are spending money on. And it is just as important to practice our own soft-heartedness by giving when it is asked of us. Allow yourself to be touched by need. Working towards fair trade and equitable purchasing. Now, it can be really overwhelming to look at all the injustice that exists within the clothing industry, the food industries, uh, within the tech industry and a whole lot of other things that we're spending our money on. And to think, how do I change my whole life with all of these items? So I find it helpful just to focus on one item in my home or life at a time. Am I buying a fair trade brand of clothing or of food or of coffee or of... And then if I've managed to make the switch in that area, then what's the next area in my life that I need to shift, that I need to change? Most of all, I want to keep coming back to, am I purchasing something to bolster my identity, to give me my worth, to make me feel better when I'm stressed? And tithing, like practicing generosity, tithing helps us to maintain a thankful and a soft heart. Now, if you don't know what tithing is, it's a, an Old Testament law and a New Testament principle that says that we give the best, the first 10% of everything that we have back to God. That is our money, that is our time, that is our gifts. Now, the 10% number is, is an encouragement to begin there and then to go beyond. But it basically says God has blessed us to bless him and to bless others with. And so we give that first and that best to remind ourselves of what he's given us. Now, it won't guarantee us wealth in return, but it gives us freedom from enslavement to our resources. And perhaps the most important, making the time to get our worth from God. Take the time to hear from him how he sees you, how he loves you, what he's calling you into, what he's calling you away from, and then, how he wants you to spend your resources. We've now spent most of our time on the first five verses. So as I said earlier, everything in this chapter could be its own sermon. But so that we get to communion before Jesus returns, come Lord Jesus, I will just make one or two points for each of the following sections. First of all, patience in suffering. What do you reckon? Yeah, I thought so too. The audience for these verses is still the church. They may or may not be the wealthy members addressed in early verses. But we know that suffering hits wealthy and poor. And all members of the church will struggle with patience in suffering. Now we can often idealise martyrs. But persecution can break people on every level. Relationally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and psychologically. It is not a goal to attain. Sometimes we think of people in persecuted nations, of people in persecuted churches, and think, oh, it's hard for them. But isn't it good that, you know, they're becoming better Christians, right? Isn't that beautiful? No, it sucks, guys. This is awful. It's not okay. It's an expression of a broken world. Now, God is faithful and he sustains his people and he can turn something awful into something good. 
But it is not something to strive for, and sin, sin can creep in through the cracks that are created by weariness and suffering. Even more than this, we are not absolved from accountability for our actions just because we are suffering. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. And as Tasta says, the verb used here for be patient is usually rendered long-suffering, and it denotes not so much the brave endurance of afflictions and the refusal to give way before them even under pressure as the self-restraint which enables the sufferer to refrain from hasty retaliation. Now, I get very passionate about justice, and injustice makes me angry, and especially, selfishly, injustice, when it's against me, makes me really, really cross. And as a good friend once told me in the kindest of terms, I have enough wrath for two people when it comes to indignation on my own behalf. But in learning to engage with my anger and injustice, I've needed to recognise that while we are called to advocate for the... You've got the diggles, Lauren, here, right there? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just quoting Lauren here. Uh, <laughs> let's go back. I've needed to recognise that while we are called to advocate for the persecuted and the disadvantaged. It is God who brings the ultimate justice. So I can rest in the knowledge that he will be the final judge of those I feel have wronged me or others and the final judge of myself too. We'll leave this section with the final words on patience from N.T. Wright, who has captured the spirit of this passage. Now it can be painful to wait for Jesus' coming. And we can feel despairing. But as he says, how could we think that just because it was later than we had wanted and hoped, it might mean that he would never come at all? Every generation of Christians has prayed that Jesus would come as he promised. And so far, every generation has had to learn the lesson of patience. Indeed, the command to be patient and the fact that patience is one of the key aspects of the Spirit's work in our lives might in itself tell us that such a precious gift is going to be needed. We shouldn't be surprised at the delay. And once again, it's a matter of humility. Don't imagine that our time scale corresponds to God's time scale. And it's all the more important that we who follow Jesus should learn patience and practice it. And the way we do this, as usual in James, is to focus our attention on God himself. The Lord, he says, is deeply compassionate and kindly. And sometimes how hard it is to believe that, but how vital. How easy it is by contrast to think of God as remote, uncaring, unfeeling, or if he feels anything, perhaps we might think he's annoyed or cross with us about this or that. Well, there may be things to sort out, but as James has already said, God's mercy is sovereign. That is the deepest truth about him. Wright goes on to say, a hasty, impatient spirit is another form of pride of the human arrogance that imagines it knows better than God. And the temptation to lose patience may lead all who yield to it to the sins to which impatience so easily gives rise to vindictiveness and despair. And these sins of impatience, pride, of arrogance, of wanting to be in control... Those are basically the same sins that entrap the wealthy. Are we finding our worth in God? 
Are we approaching him with humility? And now to verse 12. All you need is a simple yes or no. Now just to be clear, this is not talking about profanities. We can have that discussion later if you want to. Uh, But this passage is talking about swearing oaths on the name of God or on earth or in heaven or on our mother's lives or on our father's graves or on, you know, my pet or um, things that we get really jump up and downy about. I'll just say this. If we live lives of integrity, then people will be able to take us at our word. And we will remain unthreatened by those who don't. Be who God has called you to be, someone who finds your identity and worth in Christ in every aspect of your life, public and private, in privilege or suffering, and in joy or pain. The patriarch of the Russian church has recently come under fire for a lot of things, but amongst many, because a photograph was circulated of him wearing a very expensive watch. Now, the issue was not necessarily that he's wearing the watch, although we can have discussions about whether it's sinful to own a watch that's worth many, many tens of thousands of dollars, but because one of his aides had scrubbed out the photo of the watch and it extended, I think, the sleeve, the black of his sleeve to cover it. But you could see the reflection of the watch in the glass table that he had his hand on. Aside from the issue of what he's spending his money on, he has no integrity. Why should we trust him if he's not going to talk to us about how he's spending his money? And the one time we are told in the Bible, right, says that someone began to curse and swear was when Peter was insisting that he didn't know Jesus. And that should give us pause for thought. Now regarding prayer. Unfortunately, there's not time to go into this in depth. But suffice to say, this, this continues on the theme of finding our identity in Christ in all circumstances. And therefore, turning to prayer or praise or confession in all circumstances. Our identity is in Christ, and therefore we need not be threatened by seeking the support or absolution or prayer for healing from others in the body of Christ. If we think that we do not need or deserve the prayer and support of the church, then we are not finding our worth in Christ. If we think I can do it by myself, or if we think other people need it more than me, then we are not standing before God and seeing him as he seeing ourselves as he sees us. And a quick note to say that neither here nor elsewhere does the Bible suggest that earthly healing is always God's will like Paul's thorn in the flesh, or that inadequate faith is a direct correlation with God choosing not to heal. And I'm happy to talk about that more later in person. Finally, we come to the passage on pursuing the friend who walks away from the faith. And again, there's a lot here that we can't dig into, but I want to say that people turn from faith for a whole range of reasons, many of which aren't ours to know. But there is often deep hurt involved. And when someone steps away from faith, whom we have walked with, prayed with, rejoiced and grieved with, and who has seen us and the whole church in our own times of joy, grief, of doubt and faith, it can be deeply painful for those who remain as well. It can feel like betrayal. We don't always acknowledge that. But if we want to love like Christ loves, then we continue to pray. 
We continue to live with integrity and humility. We continue to trust that only God knows the heart. And so we can carry hope that we will once again walk into the presence of Christ with that friend. Sometimes we pursue those who step away out of a sense of obligation. Oh, quick, the good Christian thing to do is to catch them and bring them back. And yet Christ doesn't pursue us because it's the good Christian thing to do. If Christ is willing to meet us, his broken but healing body of Christ, where we are, and to pursue us continually from a deep and a constant love, then how much are we called to love and pursue in the same way and in his strength from a place of real friendship and not a sense of obligation or feeling threatened by difference? We are called to pursue that person who has left the church or turned from Christ. Do we love, pursue, and faithfully pray for others because God loves, pursues, and advocates for us? Do we love as Christ loves us? And do we find our worth in Christ because he first reached out for us? Is he my everything? Is he yours? We'll turn to communion now.